You are listening to a Core Awareness Seminar by Liz Cook. Her website is www.coreawareness.com. That's C-O-R-E awareness.com. Please note that Core Awareness is a trademark signature of Liz Cook, her workshops, seminars, books, and CDs. The information presented in the seminar is in no way intended as a substitute for receiving professional medical care. The design and purpose of the seminar is to provide information and to simply educate. The author and publisher shall have neither liability nor responsibility to any person or entity with respect to any loss, damage, or injury caused or alleged to be caused directly or indirectly by the information, suggestions, explorations, or exercises contained within the seminar or written in response to the seminar. The author is not a medical authority, and she is not qualified to diagnose or prescribe any therapy. The information is simply for personal opinion. Please seek medical care for whatever condition you may have. I want to welcome everybody to the Core Awareness uh, SOAS Teleseminars. I haven't done a seminar for a while, and I welcome you all to join me with John Christ. Um, if you're just new to my newsletter, this is Liz Cook, and my website is coreawareness.com. If somebody else turns you on to the opportunity to tune in, this will be a, a podcast eventually that you can share with people, and it will be free on the website. It takes a while, and I wait a while as well, because uh, one of the reasons I do that is because I want to encourage people to be on the newsletter to find out things about their SOAS and to give you kind of a, a gift for doing that, for joining my newsletter and uh, attending my workshop. So this is kind of one of the ways for me to give back to you. So today we're I'm interviewing John Kreitz, who's a personal trainer and a, and a friend that I know through, uh, he worked with my daughter, who was hyperflexible uh, quite a few years ago, and he's in partnership with uh, Derek Stockton, who I speak about a lot if you've come to my workshops, and they train together at um, and teach at Core Strength RX Gym, which is in Scotts Valley, California. And if you're just joining me, please star six to mute so we don't get any static on the phone. That really is a great help. And I'm over here muting you as quick as I can. Um, so uh, John's specialty, he works with all kinds of people, but his specialty is working with those who are trying to return to health after injury, surgery, or a time of weakness. And I want to introduce John. And John was born with congenital hip uh, dislocation, which was, he told me, was not apparent until he was almost three years old. His parents, he said, fortunately, declined the first two recommendations, which were either fusing or artificial joint replacement. And there was a new procedure at that time, which was called closed reduction, and that's what they used on John. And it involved stretching the legs down until the joints were in their appropriate location and immobilizing them in a cast from his waist down. And the cast time totaled about one and a half years. 
and then he was it was followed up with braces and traction. So this is um, what I would call a psoas trauma. Um, as a result, uh, he ended up with about 40% formation of the right and about 60 of the left. And uh, he told me this was now, is now a standard procedure that's typically done by six months with more like a 90 to 95% joint formation to be expected. And we'll talk a little bit about that in relationship to children. Um, his partial hip joints uh, lasted years, he told me, with the right being replaced 20 years ago and the left 10 years ago. He recently had major revision of the left joint due to particle disease, which he said in a short form is bone loss primarily in the pelvis due to the body reacting to wear debris from the prosthetic joint. He's had five major joint surgeries and one minor one. It's included two hip replacements and one hip revision. And the good news is that eight weeks after his hip revision, he was able, at a body weight of 175, to squat nearly 300 pounds. He's a power lifter at the age of 63. John knows a lot about hips, hip surgery, and how to get your full range of motion after hip surgery. So welcome, John. Thank you very much. Um, so let's begin right away. As a trainer, you have found some really key things that are important uh, in looking at other people, but also in working with yourself that you would say or have mentioned are kind of often neglected. And so let's start with uh, the prehab or before surgery and how important that time is for people. I, uh, I will be stopped periodically by Liz because it's a topic that obviously can get involved. What I've experienced uh, in a lot of people is due to pain in the hips, uh, they've become very inactive. There hasn't been much activity. It's easy to get sedentary. Combination of things are going to happen. You're going to have weakness in the muscles that are going to locate, stabilize, guide the hips through movements. You're also going to have adaptive shortening of a lot of those muscles, which is going to make it even more challenging to get range of motion. So you've already sacrificed the range of motion. Plus, um, you know, a surgery is traumatic. It's a lot of stress on the body in many levels. And depending on the approach that's done, there's a lot of muscle that gets cut. That's to be rehab. If that is healthy tissue to begin with, if you're working through, you know, enhancing your range of motion, your stability, before you ever get in for that surgery, um, you're going to be a whole lot better off. And I talk in terms of training for a surgery. You want to get that body ready to be healthy and ready to respond. Okay, so let's break that down a little bit. Somebody's in a lot of pain. They're uncomfortable. They're having troubles walking. Their psoas is tight because of it. Where do they begin? Well, the first thing is look at the exercises they are doing now. If they're walking, um, and we'll go off on an OT item, are you walking in a neutral position? It's real easy for you to start to get hip pain now you're shifting off to the side. You're further compromising your hip that's degraded and the healthy hip at the same time. So you can be walking, which is a great exercise. You need to be neutral. And we can talk now or later about how to use a cane and how to get that stability. And then you have to define where's the pain coming from. In few of the cases, uh, those that are you know truly only an arthritic condition, is there a lot of that coming from the hip joint itself. Um, it can be 
uh, if it's truly arthritic and it's still, a lot of times you've lost the nerves there. If your hip is the type where um, it's more of dysplasia prone, where it's actually moving out of the socket, you're going to be loading up and irritating all of the connective tissue around it, and you're going to be inflaming tendons and bursa. Um, you can literally probe on your own, a great massage therapist, go find out how, where is the origin of that pain. Now, if you're feeling it, gee, I'm feeling it here out on the outside of my hip, okay, that's a long way from the hip joint. You're at the greater trochanter. You've got now the attachment of, uh, you know, of the glutes, of the piriformis. Uh, you know, below and inside, you've got attachment of the psoas. So, you know, identifying where that pain is and dealing with it. Um, okay, so let's let's yeah. stop there and talk about dealing with pain there. So you have pain in the hip. You know you're going to have surgery. How do you start preparing for surgery when you have a pain on the outside, the inside? You know where it is now. Say you, you've identified where the pain is. What do you do next? Right. Um, you don't run to your doctor and get a cortisone shot. Um, you'll gladly recommend that. Why not? Why not? In a lot of cases, you can avoid it. You know, I've had them in the past because mine was way out, um, but we were waiting, trying to get through a period where there were a lot of changes in the procedures. I dragged one hip for six years, the first one, long story. But, um, you know, there are negative effects on the tissue, and I rarely recommend something like that unless to get it dialed down. Do everything you can first. You know, okay. the first modalities of reducing inflammation are icing those joints, and then getting yourself in an environment where you can freely move. Um, you Give know, me an example. A hot bath, you know, where you can get into a hot bath, and now you have tissue that's more supple, where you can move it through a range of motion, because you need that mobility. And the mobility is what's, you know, that's what we're going after in the healing, and that mobility is not just your ability to articulate a joint, right, but it's your ability to keep that tissue healthy by you know, all the muscles being able to move through a full range of motion, therefore having good circulation and healthy tissue. Recognize, you know, the sideways, when you have a hip replacement, that joint, once it's done, and I'm talking about you know, traditional ones that are current, um, you don't get any pain from that. The joint's gone, it's not innervated, it may not have been massively innervated, it is all of the soft tissue around it that you're gonna be healing. And typically when you have uh, a hip replacement, it is immediately weight-bearing, but you don't have lateral stability due to what's been done in your body through the incision paths to do that hip replacement. Okay, so let's pause there. That's great. Um, so we're looking at bathing. We're looking at uh, cold uh, icing for, for pain. What Lin else? Liniments, massage, using the, roll, you know, the rollers and knobbers, which I'm sure Liz discussed in other areas, are tools where you can do your own massage work to break down bound up tissue. And a lot of it has been recognized you have pain in that hip. You're going to be through the muscles around the hip. You're going to be locking up and trying to protect it. Your body's going to do that. So you need to work on getting that tissue healthy. And again, you know, the right environments, and we mentioned the bath because, you know, the heat will relax those muscles, but then the use of in, in that bath, of course, various salts to extract toxins, but you'd be looking at using heat in other ways, uh, using cold directly on areas that are really inflamed, where you can find and you can actually feel that inflammation, um, and various liniments. Can you give an example of one liniment you've 
found successful? Well, one we use a lot is a horse liniment, so I'm not sure if I'm supposed to recommend that. It's McTernahan's <laughs> horse liniment. The reason I bring that up, um, because most of the products in the market are all the same. You go to the store and you look at, you know, Icy Hot and and um, Super This and that, and they're all 5% menthol. Uh, if you take it a step further and you have something that includes, you know, menthol and camphor and methyl salicylate, now you're having what that will have in it. The Salon Paz products have all three of those components in it, and you can get uh, patches in that, which is great because then I've, I've got a hip area that's lit up. Uh, I'm going to put a patch on there at night. Now I'm going to get the benefit of those liniments that are going to help keep that circulation going when I'm not moving. It's not a substitute. It's an additional healing mod modality. And um, we use them a lot. We use a lot of the liniments before and after exercise, massage it. So, you know, what I'm hearing underneath all the great information is you got to keep moving. Movement is the healer. Yep. And, um, and so we're talking about micro movements in many times, not just large you know, movement. Well, let's, talk about, let's talk about yeah. that a little bit. Yeah, the, well, and um, I'll regress only slightly. When you have the pain in the hips and now your movement is limited by pain and the other piece of that is by fear. You know, this hurts. Should I be moving? Uh, yes, you need to move. Now you're going to have uh, less circulation and all that soft tissue there. You're going to have, again, what I refer to as adaptive shortening of those muscles. And now you have the opportunities for real adhesion. Allah, you've been very curious about a frozen shoulder. You can do the same thing to your hip by not having the movement. Um, that becomes a vicious cycle, which is broken by movement. And the things we're just talking about um, are all tools. Because as soon as you start getting that tissue healthy, now it's going to be responsive to the range of motion kind of movements that you're going to employ to get it healthy. So at this point, you're not doing any weight-bearing. You're doing more... Weight-bearing in, in the sense that no more than your body weight. Okay. Okay, great. Let's uh, talk about uh, using a cane before surgery. Would you, would you recommend that for somebody who's yeah, really struggling? Yeah, typically what happens if you've got pain in the hip, um, you are not walking gracefully. Right? You're going to be shifting over to the opposing side, and even though now you'll start to feel pain on the opposite hip, hip opposite knee, but you're also throwing things out of balance on that hip that's giving you the trouble. And I recommend that people, as soon as they reach that point, if you, if, you know, once you'd walk, once you've gotten moved, you know, walk a while and it hurts, and then you're starting to shift over to enable you to can you walk using a cane. Now the cane is used as long as that joint is weight-bearing and relatively stable, meaning that you can walk along without falling over towards the weak hip, then that cane goes on the opposite side, and it's held at your hip. So wait, so, so if it's my left hip socket that needs replacing, you're saying that my cane is on the right side. Cane is on the right side. So when you plant your left foot as you step forward, you're planting the cane in the position as if you had a right foot there. So you're making this V that then you step through with the other leg. So you're keeping your body neutral, you're keeping your spine centered on your feet, say that more than your hips, centered on where your feet are, and you're taking half the load 
with your right leg that's on the left side as if you're just standing neutral and you're giving yourself the opportunity to keep from shifting side to side, stressing and creating an unstable pattern that will become harder to break later on. And this is the same thing you need to do after the replacement. Perfect. So let's um, move on to, okay, um, getting ready, getting your home set up for the surgery. Um, you may or may not have an opportunity to have some occupational therapists to deal with you and come out of a hip replacement and they may give you some of the tools. But um, the most annoying one is the high toilet seat because one of the protocols is not to be flexing your hips more than 90 degrees initially until those muscles become um, a little healthier and um, are reacting properly. There's two advantages to this. Uh, one, um, you eliminate that range of flexion. Make sure when you get one of these, wherever you get it, that it has arms on it because you need something to put your hands on to help push you upright because you can't rock forward and do your proper squatting hip flexion movement. Uh, something which I have done, and I don't know if anybody else has, is if you get a friend to do this, hang a literally a chain over your bed with a handle on it. When you're in a hospital, you have something you can reach up to pull yourself up. Um, you're not going to have that at home. And you need that. It'll help you getting in. It'll help you a lot getting up out of the bed because your hip flexors uh, are going to be one of the toughest and, frankly, typically most painful areas of the hip replacement. Um, they'll come along. They'll be great. But initially, they're not going to help you. So something you can grab onto so you can get up to sitting and then swing your legs off to the side. There's also a tool that will hook on your foot just to bring your legs up and onto the bed. Um, you know, the things you have to set up at home. Um, most of it's pretty pretty routine. You don't want pieces of carpet you're going to trip over. Um, you don't want your dogs running you down. Um, and what I've done is uh, use a heat pad in the bed. And I use it uh, for other things from back periodically. But during the hip rehab, I literally take this electric heat pad and I have it wrapped around my hip. So I've got this warmth and I'm encouraging circulation all the time as part of the healing process. It's good to have it in there and get used to using it. Um, you need to be set up. I mean, in a perfect world, you've got a hospital bed that, you know, elevates you up, and then it's easy to get in and out of, but not in the real world. And once that hip's done, you're not going to want to be putting a screw into your ceiling. Get somebody else to help you out with that. Okay. So so what do people need to do? Uh, you've, you've, you've done some prehab work, keeping uh, supple, keeping the tissue as healthy as possible so we can recover quickly. Um, and we're talking about really the whole body in terms of its suppleness. So, so we're really looking at the midline and this keeps the psoas. And uh, you know, it, what you're suggesting working along the midline helps with the fear because when the psoas is more juicy and supple, you don't get that same fear response in the system. So you're more centered, you're more organized, you're more coherent. And, um, and so now you're headed into surgery. Before surgery, when people are selecting physicians, just as one person said, gee, I didn't find the right doctor before, I thought maybe you might have some suggestions of questions or things for people to think about when they're talking to their physicians. If you have the opportunity to interview your physicians, um, you look at where, what they recommend in terms of 
prehab. And if they give you a blank look, um, see if you can find the door. And uh, how extensive they will, how extensive an amount of um, therapy afterwards they are able or willing to prescribe for you. Also, um, I have very strong feelings that you want a doctor who, if they're doing a total hip replacement, will do a posterior lateral approach and not an anterior lateral approach. Some doctors will like the anterior approach because they can end up doing less work while they're in there. In the posterior, you really have to cut group of the hip rotators and reattach them. Um, had the experience with both. The anterior approach um, created a lot of soft tissue damage um, in the quad areas um, attached to the rectus femoris and years of work to break the scarring. So um, that's strong feelings from my own opinion and in the recent hip revision I went through the surgeons who did that work uh, as they went in and commented how much scarring they saw from that approach that they were able to deal with. Um, one more comment you need to make to your physicians is you like to keep your leg length even. If your leg length is even to begin with, and not everyone is, uh, some physicians will like to, um, by the selection of the prosthetics, make that a little longer so that you're nice and tight in the hip joint. So they create some tension, right? They're dealing with a static situation. Tell them, no, you'll do, the, you'll do the rehab. You will take care of that by getting your surrounding tissue healthy. Wow, that's, that's a great suggestion. Um, I mentioned before we started of a young woman who had a birth defect and has had quite a few surgeries. That, and she came to me because the last one she had, they moved the psoas out of the way, kind of pinned it, and the length of the surgery made the psoas actually lose its resiliency. So it was almost, I want to say, kind of flabby or neurologically unresponsive, like it had been stretched forever and ever. And you you seem to have some take on some of the things that might happen that people might want to either discuss with their physician or be aware of during the surgery. Right. Well, those are, the, you hit on it, and I think I covered a couple of the main items. Um, Again, you know, there are so many different approaches depending on how much. I can, I'm only dealing with the absolute total hip replacement and what's involved in it. Um, so far, there are multiple types of materials involved, and there is the potential of wear debris from all of them. Um, and we'll maybe hit that topic, although it's not about getting the tissue healthy. Um, I think, um, you know, you just need to be with a, a physician you need to tell them what your level of activity is. Not right now, but what you consider to be a level of activity that you want to get back to. Um, too often, the physician is happy when uh, you go in 30 days later, uh, you walk in, you can obviously walk, you can sit on the couch and use the remote control. That's not the level of activity. That's not the level of function you want. You need to have somebody who it's a little dialed in and sensitive to that, where you want to go, the mobility and the activity in life that you want to have after this. Okay, so why does that matter when you're headed into surgery? Um, a little bit of it's your attitude and a little bit of it's someone recognizing that, um, you know, their basic surgery may be the same, but 
what's he going to provide for you afterwards? Recognize that you don't want to be on the assembly line. You want to ha have the opportunity afterwards to avail yourself of all the resources of uh, physical therapy and rehab, and they need to know that going in. They okay. have that mindset. Okay, and so you're picking someone also in reference to what they have to offer. Right. Well, at, one, at one point, um, I've dealt with a, few, a variety of rehab and um, physical therapists, um, and there are a few good ones. And uh, when I could get dialed in with someone who, say, was from a sports medicine group, it was so much better because they recognized the goal was get people back to doing what they love to do, not just able to, uh, like I said, work the remote control and write the checks. Got it. Okay, so I want to head into this next phase, which I know you know a lot about. And as you said, people have a period of physical therapy that's usually associated with their uh, post-surgery. But all of a sudden, that drops off. And as you say, there's no roadmap after that. There's no direction where to go after you've completed what they consider post-rehabilitation. So let's start there. What do you, what do you recommend for for getting going, getting really truly mobile. Right. Well, the first, again, the, the you know your physical therapy is going to give you actually a little sheet you'll probably get in there. You know, basic exercises to start moving the hips, and some of you're going to be in bed doing it. Now, recognizing that um, you're basically weight bearing right away, um, you'll leave a hospital on crutches, and the reason you need those is your stability. It's not this, not weight bearing. All those muscles that were engaged in that surgery are going to continue to be a little numb and not as responsive. Um, it, it sets them back a ways. Plus, uh, depending on the approach, you may have you know several weeks where you don't want to put any heavy load on it. If you can now, also make an admonition here: um, love people to get into water. You can't do that until the the scarring is healed. But recognize that you know those tools. You have to do work around that for a little bit. Um, you know, the first thing you do is you get out and you get walking on the crutches and you get that movement. Then the other partial movements, you have to do a lot of them standing up, um, bringing your legs out to the side, doing your abduction. You can't do a lying when at first you're not strong enough. Get yourself standing up where you can brace your arms in some, in some situation so you're not shifting that weight over the right hip. People start to do some of the traditional standing hip rehab, prehab exercises, and find they're having so much pain because they've got all that weight shifted over the other side. You just support your arms. You could be, you know, in a uh, kitchen or somewhere, you know, elbows on a counter, you know, something to hang on to. You start doing those movements. What I don't see very often is where you're just standing. You're alternately bringing your knees up. I know the healthy one's going to come up, you know, well above your navel. The left one's only going to go a little ways at first. It's a number of reps in doing it. Um, and, you know, those are all, you know, relatively standard movements, but it's how you put them together under no load initially. And then you've got to be working your range of motion. And that's a very, so it's from the left hip. I'm going to be lying on my back, drawing my knee up for one movement. And at first, I may not even be able to get it to go very far at all. When you're doing passive range of motion, this or any other joint, you're going to take it to that level of range of motion with a little bit of tension, not a lot. You know, pain-wise, this is, you know, a two or a three. You know, you keep, and then you keep that tension on through a number of easy breaths, and you repeat it. If you put in an hour a day in your rehab, you will get healthy very quickly. But you have to distinguish between strengthening 
and establishing range of motion. So the range of motion is tension, traction, a little bit loading into it. And sure, it's a little painful. That area has had some trauma. It's also shortened, and it's been shortened a little bit by the tension uh, that was created in the process and also maybe shortened because you've gone through a period uh, where due to pain, you haven't been moving this joint through its full range of motion. And you're going to start on that path to getting back to full range of motion and then add strengthening. Okay. So so awareness plays a big part of it, of, of really sensing into the tissue, mm-hmm. to the hip, and following your own impulses of knowing where that range is. And any cues for that? Because I think for a lot of people, there's there if they're afraid of pain or they've had a lot of pain, it's almost like their nervous system is already overwhelmed. Um, yes, and you know the big fear for everyone is, okay, am I going to pop out the hip joint? That's right. So let's go there. Yeah, your standard, you know, there's a standard protocol which which you'll get, which initially says, okay, you're not going to go beyond 90 degrees of hip flexion. Right, which means my knee's coming up towards my chest. I'm not going to go beyond 90 degrees. I'm not going to make the angle between my, my femur and my spine less than 90 degrees. You're also not going to be crossing your legs. Right? And you look at that. Okay, there I'm in a position. I start to open it up. And as far as rotating out, you can actually go a bit, bit further. But it's moderate. You're going to be tight in that direction. So you got the standard protocol uh, involved in. And the reason you have that is because um, you know, those muscles that were engaged in this, some of them are going to be real tight, but they're not going to be very responsive. You don't have all those nerves firing and working together. Um, they're going to be guiding and stabilizing your hip and locating it. And if you have a posterior approach, again, there's going to be some reattachment um, that has to heal up. So it's not going to be playing its part as far as really strengthening. So you have those protocols. Um, after that, you know, the design of the hip hasn't changed. And for some of you with a partial one, you may have as much or more coverage than you had before. So your internal and external rotators and then ones that uh, are not just linear, you know, the glute and glute minor, um, as they get engaged more um, and you can still start doing squats and the like. Um, you know, very, very soon. As soon as, you know, your body will lie to a little bit, it'll be a very short range of motion, but you're starting to deal with, to get hip flexion engaged and get these muscles working. Okay, so so first we're talking about range of motion and following that, and 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 then you're, I hear you differentiating between uh, strengthening. And so let's, let's break that down a little bit. Um, a squat, is a range of motion movement and strengthening and strengthening. Right. So let's talk about right. that. How yeah. do you and where where does the person know in their own sensory awareness when strengthening could be started to add? What would be the cues for them to find that out? Should right. they work with someone? Can they tell that in themselves? And what do you think? Um, first of all, you know you're going to have a finite one that's going to be like I said, depending on the 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 work that was done, you'll probably have a three or four week. Period where you don't want to put much load on. When I say strengthening, though, I'm talking about putting, you know, even a greater load and um, than just your body weight. Now, what'll happen initially? And I bring up squats a lot because again, we're, you know, your basic hip flexion movements. When you think squatting, think like a two-year-old does it. You know, your hips go back, but you're going to do this in a very short range. 
and something you can hold hold your hands onto. Now, I'm not going to push it as a range of motion and push to see how far I can go. You'll get that feedback from your body. There's a little resistance. You know, I never push it doing an exercise like that. Range of motion work is always done with a very light load, whether it's hip or any other joint. And that's enough to traction and you coax those muscles to lengthen in the process. And then you're actively going to that range of motion by doing squats and other exercises. So, you know, there's two phenomena going on. Again, it's all about getting that connective tissue healthy. Okay. So when do you add, excuse me, when do you add strength? Um, As far as adding additional weight to movements, uh, for me, I think it's about maybe four weeks out, something like that. I had to wait that there's a, you need four weeks or so for the soft tissue to heal and also for some of the bone to be doing its part. Remembering that the, the muscle tissue and the bone are very vascular and the healing rate is quite rapid. But during that period, you can still have plenty of movement. I mean, you need to be progressing through walking ranges. And um, again, like I said, squatting, just your body weight through range of motion. As you establish that and gain more range of motion, um, that will add a fair amount of load. And then adding resistance to that, let's say, you know, in five, six weeks, depending on what you have done with the rest of that tissue. If you start to do some movements and, oh, this is really, really, you know, I, I get some red flags, uh, a little soreness after doing some work is to be expected, a little resistance, but you don't want to be doing anything that takes you beyond that, you know, maybe a three in the pain level out of the one to 10 scale. <clears throat> one to 10 scale. So I'd like you to give an example of how you uh, if you were working with someone, would start to add uh, a load. Where would you put the load? Where? What kind of load would you would you put? Well, um, depending on what you have available to you. Once you can do some squatting easily, then you can add a load on there. Uh, a simple exercise that works um, hip flexors works your. Um, oh, I'll think the name in a second. Lying on your back, doing a single leg raise, right? Now, you can't do that at first. You're going to be doing hip flexion only by standing and starting to raise that knee up. When that reaches the point where you can do that well, then you're going to lie on your back and do a single leg raise, one knee bent and the other one straight out, and then raising that leg. That's going to be a significant amount of load. That's going to be a significant amount, and you'll find that you're going to go a few inches at first. And then over time, you get the full range. But that's a lot of strength building in a small area. Okay, great. And if you were doing the squat and you added um, a load, are you talking about like a medicine ball? Yes, but uh, that would be a little ways down the road because you have to have some really good stability. But you can still do it in a, in a shorter range of motion. We would call it you know, doing a fairly high box squat where you're not asking to do a lot of flexion in the process. Mm-hmm. Plus, you're also in this process, um, taking yourself off of other supports. For example, you started off with the crutches. And maybe this is the next topic. Oh, yeah. Well, let's go there. <laughs> let's go there. So okay. Because um, when you start off with <coughs> crutches, the crutches are not going to help you much in the 
uh, in the hip recovery because it becomes you have to use the crutches to help you walk, not using it like a damaged knee where I'm just going to swing through and put a load on it. So I use the crutches to give me that same support when I'm stepping forward. And we'll call it the left one. We'll pick one, the rehabbing hip. So I use the crutches to stabilize me and take some load off of it. I'm still engaging those. When that gets, you know, if you're feeling fine with that, you can briefly do a period of a single crutch on the rebuilt side. And I say briefly because it's not the most natural movement in the world, but you're developing stability. And then you go over to the, uh, the crutch. Uh, hint, when you're doing your walking, and you need to be walking every day, and as far as I'm concerned with the crutches, that starts the day you get out. Uh, I think rehab starts the day you get out of the hospital. And when you're walking with the crutches, great. When you go to that single crutch, you walk a ways, you know, it's feeling fine. You think you can do it with the just the cane? You know, take the other tool along with you because you'll find additional fatigue going on. You have a progression there as you're taking away the support devices and more stabilizing devices after a while, you're adding load and you're adding load uh, to your abductors because it's that lateral stability that you'll be losing in the process. When you had um, your shoulder surgery, I know, and, and also your most recent hip surgery, mm -hmm. you surpassed your physician's expectation of recovery. So you were doing what most people can do at three months, at three weeks. So I, I want you to give any of your your secrets away here. Can I, what what was the what do you think were the things that really did it um, for you? Two things. One, um, training for the surgery. Um, for the hip one, it wasn't as bad. Um, because I could maintain a pretty high level of movement and strengthening uh, right up until the point of the surgery. Um, the shoulder was a major um, issue because, um, you know, there's some completely torn tissue that had to be reattached and others. Um, but even in that period, I was still trying to maintain uh, all the surrounding tissue as much as I could. Healthy. There's ways to work around and keep in the, also you've got to keep the rest of your body healthy. You know, healing these areas uh, is going to depend on what you have going is partially what's going on in the rest of your body. I mean, rest, nutrition, and um, keeping active. Just because one joint doesn't work doesn't mean you can't get the rest of the body working and staying active. Um, old expression from told me is very clear. You know, the body wants to heal itself, but you've got to give it the tools. And so even when in damaged areas, uh, getting that tissue as healthy as you can, again, you know, um, you know, bad liniment massage, you know, stretching, which is range of motion work. Um, the other things were, and the hip was a good example. Um, I was in the hospital four days, and the next day I was in the gym. And someone drove me just because it's rather awkward, only for a couple, for a day or so, and then I went on crutches. Uh, I knew um, knee, my knee was bothering me a lot because they have to use your, they have to crank your knee, they have to, use some leverage to dislocate the hip, part of the procedure. Uh, I knew I could get in there and use very light leg extensions, get into a, a uh, controlled leg press where I could create a very light tension uh, and break that down one leg to the next. There were tools right there 
So the rehab started immediately. Um, then the thought process of, well, I need to just take it easy. <clears throat> you need to be careful. Uh, you need to be smart. Um, but the longer you spend inactive and lacking mobility after the surgery, uh, not just the longer it's going to take you to get healthy, um, but the more your tissue is going to become um, weak, uh, adaptively shortened, uh, and you're in the risk of creating adhesions because you don't have gliding and sliding muscle and tendon tissues. I watched you um, work on your shoulders, and I was um, excuse me. <clears throat> I was very impressed with how you um, worked so attentively to the very subtle movements and following what I would call sensation, the feedback system, um, with every move you made. So um, one of the things that isn't always appreciated is the level of, of attention to your own sensation, the attention that you gave to, to the movement that gave your system the ability to actually kind of guide you almost through the movement rather than you impose something on your system. I was very impressed with that. Well, the shoulder, and we're talking about hips here, the, the shoulder is a lot tougher there because we only locate the shoulder joint by the engagement of a variety of muscles, which the rotator cuff are just a piece of it. So locating that shoulder joint consistently in space and time while moving in different directions, it takes all your attention. And then said so you, you know, your body creates, uh, I use a lot of people in the limit switch. You know, where's that range of motion? Okay, I feel a little tension, and if I'm working range of motion, I'm going to have a little bit of pain. I'm going to stay there and allow the body to adapt to that and realize, okay, this is okay, and I can open up a little bit. Um, you know, the proprioception is a huge part, not just of exercise, but of doing rehab, prehab exercises where I now have uh, a weakened muscle group, and I, I want to address, I want to move them through range of motion. I want to get healthy movement so I can get not just the strength, the range, but the circulation to heal that tissue. So proprioception while doing the exercises is, is what you're really addressing. Mm -hmm. And and the short form, since you've got to put in the work. Going to a physical therapist is nice. Um, they should work with you a little bit, uh, give you some direction. But unless you're planning on putting in an hour a day of getting healthy, um, you're not going to progress very quickly. Okay. I want to talk about stretching um, because I think stretching is misunderstood. Um, you know, we talk about with the psoas, stretching the psoas when it's when it's shortened, rather than looking at its uh, resiliency, its its uh, responsiveness. So just pulling. You know, if you pull on tissue you're really pulling joints apart in many, time, in many cases. And so I'd like you, I know you don't stretch that way, and so I, I want you to talk about what a stretch is when you're maintaining the, um, uh, the centered joint, hip joint. You know, how do you think about stretching? Well, it's, you know, to me, stretching, <clears throat> I guess I think in terms of it, you know, the rehab world of it, uh, and not just rehab, prehab, just getting the joint healthy, uh, Joint articulation, range of motion. They become, you know, they become synonyms in this. In the the short form, you know, you have other tissues 
that are that react on their own, Golgi and spindle fibers that fire on their own. You're in the car crash, you don't even know it's happened yet, hasn't even gone through your sensory awareness, your reaction time, and all of a sudden your body is being thrown apart. These will fire and react to this sudden movement and they're going to engage suddenly. Now they're locked up. Uh, they may or may not want to release anytime soon. When people unfortunately have this thing of, oh, I'm going to stretch a little bit, I'm going to stretch really hard. As soon as you start to do that, okay, these fibers are going to engage. They're going to lock up and they're going to fight you. So now in an, instead of getting extension and coaxing muscle fibers you know, to release and extend, you've actually created a, a group of them that are working vigorously to contract. So uh, in stretching, and again, I mean, you know, I'll say a passive range of motion, you need to be in a passive mode, i.e. where you are using a weight, you're using a strap, you're using your hands to get a stretch, a gentle tension on where the body, you're in that initially and the body looks at it and says, okay, this is a constant. I don't need to fight this. And you can feel it incrementally extend a little bit. So I love to do things where we're using traction, we're using bands, we're using weights to put a muscle area in a particular direction in traction, putting a little tension on it, a little extending. Also, think about the stretching. I mean, we use the word just because it's so common. Um, extending would be a better term. Um, in chains. You know, part of the time you do it individual muscle groups, but it's all long chains that are connected as well. Um, you know, within the hip, um, you know, we have a variety of, of uh, stretches. Some of them are going to be directing more to piriformis, other at the glutes, the, the, the toughest ones to deal with in those areas. And again, I want to put it in a position where it's under a little bit of tension. If I can maintain that for a period of time, it will allow me incrementally to open up a little more because I'm no longer putting it in a uh, flea or fight condition, which is, you know, right down there at the smallest muscle level. Right. So um, uh, let's talk about inflammation, just because um, for some people, their their hip is um, potentially going to have surgery because there's arthritis and there's inflammation. And, and, um, and I know you have some opinions about blood flow and anxiety and inflammation and I don't know any 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 things you can well, suggest yeah, both, to people. Yeah, both before and after, you know, recognize that um, you know, you've got some tissue around that hip which may be sharing inflammation, meaning that you've got arthritis in a joint. Should that be it, that spreads beyond just what's in the capsule. And recognize that hip capsule is surrounded by the capsule is created by a group of slightly twisted ligaments that form the capsule, which needless to say has to get cut um, to get in there and then reheal. But also the positional changes that you go through the uh, will create, can create a fair amount of inflammation in those areas. That's why I say you've got to probe and look at the individual tissue. Um, when areas inflamed, you know, icing to reduce the inflammation. And then, like I said, talk about liniments, but also massage because you need that circulation to help heal and deal with the inflammation. So, you know, treat this, yes, I've got a joint under, you know, under stress, but what I have is a large group of small and larger muscles, um, which are be irritated and then become inflamed just by this sudden load. In the rehab process, uh, those areas are going to get inflamed. You've got some little muscles that 
have been relatively lax, you're going to work them some, uh, they're going to get fatigued and a little inflamed. And they'll need, you know, when you do any, any of the uh, flight rehab working, it would be icing immediately afterwards. Um, best example, I know this is not in this realm, uh, you see the um, baseball pitcher being interviewed after the game. His arm is completely covered in ice. Okay? Uh, no injury, but a lot of repetitive stress, a lot of load. So you know, after you do an exercise, you're going to be icing. And then, of course, you're going to be utilizing um, some heat, some massage, maybe some liniments and things, all to encourage the circulation to help it to heal. A lot of the inflamed muscles, multiple things happen that create the inflammation. The muscle that's shortened uh, because of stresses, uh, adaptively shortened because of sudden load where they've locked up, as we were discussing before, uh, in addition to being actually thicker at that point uh, and providing stress, creating stresses and friction on the surrounding joints, those muscles locked up don't have circulation. They're not moving fluids. So you're establishing a base of toxins. You know, I'm thinking that um, uh, we kind of consider, I mean, in your situation, you had a birth defect, but a lot of people, their hip sockets so-called wear out, which I find an interesting um, kind of um, that mechanical model as if we're cars and our tires need to be replaced. Um, so my, a lot of what my teaching is about is how to have healthy hip sockets long before they ever need to be replaced. And, and one of the things that keep hip sockets healthy is a balanced pelvis and what you started out with, which is that midline organization, that proprioception of moving through the midline, being centered so that we don't have these off balance sets. So, I'm assuming that for some people, their hip socket replacement has come from not having a balanced pelvis, not being centered. And I'm thinking, what happens after surgery if your whole life has been a pattern? Say you have, like, for instance, my one hip is is really needs, you know, I work a lot with it because I have a history of scoliosis. And so it has shaped differently. And, and I put stress finding my midline has been, you know, a challenge. So um, what happens for people after surgery who already have this pattern? Do they go back to that old pattern? How do they reestablish that new pattern? Because I don't know if during surgery they balance your pelvis. Do they think about things like that? You mentioned leg length, but what about these other issues that are so pertinent to keeping your keeping your hip socket. And one of the questions that was raised was, how do we keep this from happening again so I don't have to have it resurfaced or I don't have to have it redone? Or how do we make this our final surgery, our only surgery or no surgery? Right. In the case of looking at, um, say, I've had a surgery and what I do going forward, I'm, you know, avoid the, uh, the road pounding. You know, you like to be a runner, find something else to do. Um, I believe in putting load, weight-bearing work on the hips. Uh, one, I'm going to strengthen all the surrounding tissue. Two, I'm going to improve the quality of that bone. I need that strong bone development, not just so I don't have hip fractures later on because I never did any weight-bearing exercise, but also you have a mechanical connection uh, in the typical joints today that use a porous coating between the metal um, acetabulum cup 
and the bone and also between the stem uh, that is put into the femur. So again, talking from this particular model, um, I need healthy bone tissue there. Now, the bone is alive. It is like a battery that's constantly removing calcium and replenishing it. It's alive and growing. And when it is nice and strong, when it is used to having load, it is adapted to that in the same way that your muscles adapt and strengthen when they're under load. Um, key thing afterwards, we talk about them wearing out. What often has happened is that arthritis, and again, since it's another itis, it's inflammation, uh, and probably started from a systemic level, right, manifests itself out at our joints. The arthritis will create and end up with um, basically either growth or loss of uh, bone tissue on the surface of the the head of the femur. Now you've got a rough surface, and it literally starts grinding away um, on your um, the cartilage that, that's your hip socket. The you know we're unique because our body replenishes it. So you've created a surface that is no longer a smooth and active surface. Um, you know that's one of the things that you can do. Also. Um, you know, focus on the types of movements you do so that uh, you're not making your hips do all the work that your spine should be doing. And just quick item, note that I made a mistake early on in the process after um, my first one in early years of things I was doing, thinking, okay, I won't put a lot of load on the hips. You know, just, just ignorance here. Uh, my lower back took the toll for that, right? I want everything in the spine uh, not just erector muscles, but also, you know, so as on the anterior of it, further out, abdominals and others, to be doing their job of holding my lumbar curve in its proper position while moving my hips. So I need range of motion in the hips to help the spine stay healthy. If I start sacrificing, it can go the other direction. And I'm in bad position. I'm, in, I'm improperly modifying the mechanics of the hip joint, of which we mentioned, and Liz has learned about it too, Squatting and done properly is the most natural movement for it. You watch a two-year-old squat, that's how it's done. We have a culture where we sit on chairs, um, our spine gets out of position, but then when we come out of it, we're rocking forward and flexing our knees and not our hips. So range of motion, active movements there will promote health circulation in hip joints. Right. So we only have a few minutes left, and people have asked some specific questions, and many of them we've actually covered. So if you asked a question, I think you probably got a lot of the information you're asking. But I'm going to, I kind of am looking at a few of them. One of them is, um, what do you do? You, do you have any recommendations for clicking in a replaced hip? Have you experienced that? Yeah, or no? Very, very common. Um, you know, one, depending on your condition before going into the replacement. Um, and if that hipping, if that clicking, make that distinction, is as you are walking, you're feeling like it's loose and it's coming back up. Um, the basic exercises we talk about, you know, doing squatting, doing, um, talk about things called grapevines, you know, which is a walking sideways, crossing the legs movement. I think it's called rondel or something in, in the dance world. Uh, you need those movements because, again, um, what is pulling holding that into its socket, you know, it's just a simple ball and socket, is going to be that surrounding tissue. So strengthening those muscles in several different axes will help to tighten that up. This is a, yeah. Now, if you're talking about lying on your back 
and moving a leg up and down, doing a leg raise, that's a tight, typically a tight IT band. It needs to be loosened up with roller type massage. Okay, great. Now let's take it to the other point. Um, for some people uh, who have had hip surgery because of congenital hip dysplasia, is there anything to reduce the feeling of tightness around the both hips? Now it sounds like you've covered that. Is right. There anything those, else? No, those are you're in the same realm because it's getting all of that tissue, you know, supple, healthy, and in the process strong. But uh, tension there. Uh, Liz addressed the uh, the psoas role in it. I'm more addressing a lot of the other muscles. They're all playing a role in creating you know too much tension. You don't have enough freedom of motion. Uh, you're going to feel that tension. You're going to feel that as a nerve impulse that's probably going to come up through your abdomen as well. Uh, one person asked, um, she needs or he needs uh, two hip replacements. How do you choose which one to do first? Is there any tips for well, that? Well, first of all, be aware that uh, some folks do them both at the same time. Okay. Uh, I did not. Um, there was a significant difference between them. Um, you know, my first one went out badly and dragged it for several years because there were a lot of changes going on. Um, I would look very, very closely uh, if you are still able to sleep and uh, if you're putting in all the work you can to keep these healthy and you reach that point where it needs to be replaced, um, you have to assess it, x-rays, et cetera, and see how much more life you have in it. And if, it's your, if you're talking a difference of several years uh, between those joints, um, you know, it's pretty clear which one you're going to do first. Um, personal comment, get your x-rays. Get your own copies. Do not rely on someone else to keep your x-rays. Also, um, they'll argue, but get your own copies. Pay a few bucks more. Those are your reference points. You can take them wherever you want, get them reviewed by multiple people, and keep a chronology because these are tools that you, you want to have in this path. Okay. And um, there was a... There was uh, the question regarding low back pain, and and how do you start to separate the low back issues from the compromised hips? Do you is there a place to begin with that? And I kind of think yeah, I think we kind of addressed a lot of that because you need to, you know, one get the awareness and the knowledge about the tissue around the hips and start probing those areas, and then do movements, you know, be it squats, other movements, a variety of things where you place your spine in a neutral position and maintain it. And, you know, this could be the, you know, the pointers down at all fours. There's a whole variety, but think of the, the simple exercises you go through, set the spine in a neutral position and then be moving the hips independently and, you know, utilize, um, you know, the muscles of, uh, you know, psoas, abdominals, and erectors and all to locate and be aware of that position. Uh, a lot of people poorly do certain exercises and put a lot of stress on their lower back because they either overarch it or they flatten it out and you no longer have that healthy lumbar curve. So you need to maintain that, set it in place. That's how you can begin to distinguish, recognize that there are shared muscles within that family. Someone asked because of their surgery, um, they found that their psoas had a pretty strong reaction. And, um, I mean, of course, I always have opinions about the psoas, but I'd like, John, for you <laughs> to tell us. She, she, he asked, um, you know, should I use heat, cold, gentle stretching? Is there anything, because the psoas is part of the fight-or-flight response that is so intimate with the spine, goes right over the ball and socket joint, 
Does it have any special care? You can probably address that one better than I can. Again, you know, not not. How did not, you work with yours? Did yeah. you do it? Well, uh, I think by focusing on uh, maintaining my spine in a neutral position mm -hmm. while doing the movements and recognizing that, you know, when I do movements that are bringing my knees up, okay, actively, uh, while that's going on, the psoas is engaged. Mm -hmm. And so it's a matter to me more of neutrality and maintaining its position and not letting my spine be moving about when I actually want to be articulating the hip joint. I, I would agree because I think one of the biggest things I see is the lack of proprioception in ball and socket joints that are functional, that the average person, which is why I think we have such a huge need to replace hip sockets as we age because we sit on chairs and we sit in cars poorly, not, in, not um, articulating the hip socket. And in doing so, it engages the psoas even more. So that to me, proprioception, just what you're talking about, the awareness of midline, the awareness of what is actually articulating. And also I can throw in, when we talk about movements and range of motion, think of the, the, the typical uh, hip range of motion that's involved uh, in most folks in the daily life is very, very little. Yeah. So you're maybe using, you know, at most actively, maybe a fourth of its range of motion, passively, maybe a half, you know, or if that. So the muscles don't get the range of motion, the muscles don't get the move, the nerves don't get stimulated. Um, there isn't the circulation going on. So there are a lot of things because uh, the hip joint has been functioning in a very limited capacity. Uh, it's stress, you know, it's movement and stress goes to other areas. Uh, the classic, so sideways, is, um, you know, since we don't do enough hip flexion, we tend to do a lot of knee flexion. Right. So the last question I'm going to go, because we're just about out of time, is um, a massage therapist uh, wants what you consider the most beneficial thing they could do for to assist their client after joint replacement or before joint replacement? Um, they're virtually the same thing. And because a good massage therapist will be able to get in and um, work on um, piriformis, gamella superior, et cetera, et cetera, you know, a number of rotator muscles, uh, uh, IT bands and others, relieving a lot of tension, getting a lot of toxins out of there, getting them more supple. Um, and then afterwards, they got a little period where they can't do, they can't go after it. Um, make it real quick. When I started working on mine, I can go to my massage therapist for a bit, but I was using the roller and other things. There was a large tight area around a very major incision. And my goal was to keep getting that peripheral tissue soft and healthy uh, through massage that I could create. And then as I did that, that tight area was getting smaller and smaller and smaller. It was about getting healthy tissue. The massage therapist uh, is a wonderful tool. Plus, uh, someone who will help you make the connection with, okay, who is tight? Where am I feeling this? And also be aware that the tension, uh, some very tight muscles will create stresses on the bursa, which is a nice sliding sac. You get the pressure too tight on there, you've got bursitis. Find out if that's one of your major sources of pain. Great. Thank you so much, John. Let's open it up for a few questions. And I know some people may have to leave because we're just at an hour, but we're going to go over a little bit. So you can mute, and the way you mute is star six.
And if you'd like to ask a question, just introduce yourself and ask your question. Anybody would like to ask a question? Trouble hearing a question. Does anybody have a question they'd like to ask? Okay. We must have done a really good job, John. <laughs> we we covered that subject. The trick is that if you star six, you must unstar six for you to be able to talk. Otherwise, we can't hear you. So you have to experiment. And if you're still taking notes. <laughs> yeah, really. Actually, if you're still taking notes, you're going to be able to listen to this on a podcast if you joined us late. It will eventually be up online at coreawareness.com. So while we're waiting for anybody to try to figure out if they can talk or ask a question, um, uh, not to be sarcastic or anything, um, John, how do people connect with you if they would like to meet you or do a training or in this? What what are your uh not that you want to do any free consultation work, but so I want to, if, if someone would like to know more about your work or working with you. Yeah, probably the best thing is to contact me through my email, and it's johnprice at aol.com. Spelling good, so it's J-O-H-N-C-R-I-T-E-S at aol.com. You don't have a website, huh? No. No, okay. I work as a personal trainer and have a variety of other activities. But, uh, you know, subject that's uh, very important to me because uh, this process started with me 60 years ago. I'm currently 63 years old. Yeah. The, um, and you work out of, uh, out of Course Strength RX in South Valley. It's a gym, and, uh, and so you see also see clients there. Right. And I'll have to uh, throw in one credit thing. Um, I did a lot of bodybuilding for years. And like I said, it was a period where I was avoiding my hips, thinking the loading would be bad. Instead, all I did was stress my back. And Derek uh, pulled me into more functional training, uh, which has led to a lot more awareness and strength and um, just enormous difference in the way I was able to uh, rehab and prehab through these last couple surgeries. And... Um, you know, getting back to not just where I was, but uh, more range of motion and more strength than I had before. Yeah. So, so you're. Uh, so when we talk about Derek, we're talking about Derek Stockton, who is a power lifter and a trainer at Force uh, Strength RX. And uh, power lifting is a very functional. It's really based on function, not 
aesthetics. Yeah. Unfortunately, people think about powerlifting and think, oh, my God, they're lifting all that heavy weights. But whether it's powerlifting or strongman, let's throw in some, there are movements there that are very functional movements that involve the entire joint, involve articulation of the strong, uh, the entire body articulation of the strong joints. And the powerlifter is going for a maximum effort single repetition. Now, applying those same movements, learning from them, and doing them in moderate weight in uh, higher repetitions doesn't provide that same load, but you still get the benefit of the functionality of the movements. And we talk about uh, earlier getting over um, the limp, the, uh, the asymmetry from having dealt with uh, an extended uh, lower joint injury, uh, learning how to squat and having people eyeing you so that you establish that new, you know, go back to your original pattern of movement that you had as a child or even a better one. Um, it takes some extra eyes, it takes some extra training, but you can reestablish uh, much better, more symmetrical patterns of movement. My favorite thing in the gym is that when you walk in, there is the words um, posture, position, proprioception. And I've never seen that in any gym anywhere. But proprioception is a big part of powerlifting, which oh. I was not aware of, and how intelligent and somatic uh, powerlifters are. It's really great. So do we have any uh, questions before we, we end? Okay. Well, I want to... Oh, go ahead. Thank you both. Thank you. Okay. Thank welcome. you very much. So thanks for joining us. And um, if you'd like to listen to this again, you simply can do your callback number and you can listen to the whole conversation. And thank you, John, for joining me. Thank you. Yeah. Bye, everybody. <laughs>